The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us on the phone, April White, author of the book, The Divorce Colony, which I'm really excited to talk about because I didn't know any of this history and I love learning history. How women revolutionized marriage and found freedom on the American frontier. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? You know, it's Wednesday. We're halfway through this week. And as I say, you know, any any progress is good progress. And we're all still here. And in COVID, that's just a blessing. So I'm okay. We're doing we're doing great. <laughs> um, I, I didn't know uh, most of this history um, that you talk about in your book. Um, and as you follow four different women who um, did this really revolutionary thing at the time, which is get a divorce and leave their husbands, um, which as somebody who is 40 and I've never been married, um, I find uh, these women inspiring <laughs> um, because I think that, you know, every single person has to make a decision at some point to just choose happiness in whatever form that is. And I love the idea of like women in the, you know, 19th century, early 20th century being like, I am not happy. I am going all the way to Sioux Falls. Uh, to get oh, get a South divorce. Dakota, yeah. So 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 talk about first um, the four women in your book that you you follow and how their stories represent what was happening at the turn of the century, where for the very you know first time women were like, "I'm leaving you. I'm out. I'm going to get paperwork that says I am not married. I want a divorce." Yeah, so these four women are part of what becomes known as the divorce colony. And that's a lot of people who travel out to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which has the most permissive divorce laws in the country at the end of the 19th century um, in order to get a divorce. Now, it's important to note that almost all of these people are white and wealthy because this is not an easy or cheap undertaking. Um, But these four women that I write about They are women who got married for different reasons, some for economic stability, some for love and happiness, um, and are getting divorced for different reasons. In some cases, they are in um, really worrisome marriages. And in some cases, to your point, they're just unhappy. Um, So each of these women, one is the niece of the Astor family, one is the daughter-in-law of the secretary of state. Um, One is the wife of a murderer or suspected murderer, I should say. Um, And and one is this well-respected short story writer. Each of them goes out there and the attention that is put on their divorces changes how we think about divorce in this country. I mean, it's, it's kind of cool to think about this kind of thing. I mean, at least in my head, because I always, I remember in law school in family law sort of learning some of the history about 
just the idea of marriage and how the state sort of figured out, you know, how to, to regulate marriage. Um, and part of the questions that they asked is like, um, should we make it difficult <laughs> to end a marriage? And that was like a policy question. And I think at the time, a lot of morality and religion infused the thinking around marriage and divorce at the time. And so part of the policy consideration was like, it should be really, really hard to get a divorce. Um, and that was like at, from the beginning of, of when legal marriage that was like acknowledged by the state, um, you know, came to be. Yeah, absolutely. These people are thinking about the family as sort of the fundamental building block of the country. Right. So when they see divorce rates increasing, they are thinking about the stability of the nation is what they're, what they're worried about, even more so than the stability of a particular marriage. Um, so yes, that, that impossibility of two people who have entered a contract together to be able to break it without the sanction of the state makes it, makes it really difficult for people to pursue their own lives. It's, it's, it's such, um, it's a fascinating questions because I think we, we usually skip over the fact that like the reason why marriage is the way we've set this all up, um, is because of that larger goal that you're talking about, which is sort of controlling society <laughs> in a lot of ways. And through that marriage being a, a mechanism through which women and patriarchy are controlled, right? I mean, I think at the end of the day, a lot of this is about the the ways in which women tried to stand up for themselves and to have actual rights and, you know, autonomy. Absolutely. At this point that we're talking about in the, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, marriage is the number one path uh, to economic stability and social standing for women in the United States. I mean, this is this is an incredibly important financial decision you're making, an incredibly important social decision you're making. And without access to divorce, you had no recourse if that decision didn't work out well for you. If your husband walked away and was not supporting you and you could not remarry and have access to that economic stability again, you were in a terrible position. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why one of the reasons why divorce becomes so important at this moment. In terms of the of Sioux Falls becoming the place where, you know, it was almost like a euphemism for getting a divorce. How, how did that come to be? How did it become, you know, a, a, a location in which people say, okay, I'm going to, you know, get on this long journey. I'm going to go on this long journey, get on a train and go across the country um, in, in the 1800s, late, late um, 19th century to get a divorce. How did they even know to go there? How did it become the place to go? You know, it's sort of a, a weird quirk of a couple of things coming together that make it the place to go. So throughout the history of the United States, we sort of see the most permissive divorce laws on, on the Western border. Um, this was often, and this was the case in um, the Dakota territories, because you wanted to have a short residency requirement for all kinds of civic participation. Mm -hmm. So you wanted to have people only have to live there for a couple of months to be mayor of their town or to, to run for another office. And falling under the jurisdiction of the courts um, abided by this same residency requirement. So in the early 1890s, South Dakota has just become a state. They still have a lot of the same territorial laws. And you need to live in the state for three months before you fall under the jurisdiction of the court. And that's 
basically the shortest, it's the shortest in, in the country. North Dakota has the same, um, has the same rule. And so that sort of coincidence, they didn't try to be, you know, the mm. easiest place to get a divorce. <laughs> that coincidence of law made it the easiest place. And now Sioux Falls, it had five railroad lines and it had the nicest hotel for hundreds of miles. So it was the most accessible to people from the East to travel to. And so you start seeing people become aware of this. And once one very prominent woman, in this case, um, Maggie DeStewers, who's the niece of the very influential Astor family, um, once someone goes and the attention turns to that town, it's all over the newspapers. And suddenly people understand where they can travel in order to access this release from their marriages. It's fascinating to, to see all of this um, laid out um, because, you know, there's so many aspects of history that we just don't know. I mean, I, I, I love learning. I love learning new things. I mean, even some of these newspaper um, advertisements across the country that like advertise Sioux City and going to South Dakota um, as a place to get the divorce, like divorce made easy. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I just find this so fascinating. In terms of the the attitudes and the pressure, um, you know, on people to stay married at the time, you know, obviously this is only rich women and and women with means that are able to even do this. Um, but but even them, they were pressured, um, sort of from this moral um, perspective, the religious perspective. Can you talk a bit about how at the time, you know, there was a there was a lot of um, messaging and pressure from religious institutions and um, that aspect of American culture at the time um, that basically, you know, shamed any woman for even, you know, thinking about trying to get a divorce. Yeah. So the laws in various states were one obstacle to getting a divorce, but absolutely the pressure from your social group so that the risk of being ostracized by your family or your community um, and the pressure from your religious community and the idea that you may no longer be able to participate in that religious community were huge pressures on any woman thinking about making this move. Um, and so we see when, uh, when Sioux Falls, South Dakota, when the divorce colony becomes really prominent, there are lots of people who want to shut it down. They've gotten really concerned that divorce rates are rising. Um, the divorce colony becomes sort of a scapegoat of this problem. And they set out to make divorce more difficult. And they don't just do that through legislative means, although they do that as well. But they do it through court decisions. They do it through stricter religious edicts. And, and frankly, they do it just through preachers preaching the evils of it. Um, and they do it through social pressure as well. So it's not just the laws that are limiting women's opportunities. It's all of these pieces of, of, their, of their social environment coming together. In terms of some of the things that link um, a lot of that pressure to what we're looking at today as I think, you know, and I, I mentioned I'm 40, I've never been married. I have, you know, a lot of, a lot of opinions about the idea of marriage, the institution of marriage. Um, you know, I, I think that it evolved, um, throughout my thirties and forties, but also just even learning history like this, like, oh, they came up with marriage cause they like need 
society to be organized in a nice little neat fashion um and they can't have all these you know women wanting to like seek out happiness on their own that would like destroy the patriarchy you know like coming to that awareness i think um you know is something that you know we have the privilege of doing in 2022 but but i think that there are also links to what's happening now with the anti-abortion movement um and a lot of uh gender rights fronts um, that link back to some of what you're talking about from the early 19th century. Can you talk about the tactics and how they're the same? Yeah, <laughs> they didn't yeah. change. I have to say, I've been working on this project for about nine years, and I never wanted it to be as relevant as it is now. <laughs> I, I didn't see this coming. Um, but yes, it, it's there are two really surprising parallels. One is the fact that at the turn of the 20th century in divorce, we had a hodgepodge of different state laws. And that's how we saw women traveling across state lines in order to gain access to autonomy over their lives. So in a really practical way, that's what we're seeing now among women seeking healthcare. Um, in terms of the barriers that people tried to put up, I both find this infuriating and, and ultimately hopeful. So, you know, we see them the divorce opponents put up um, let these legislative, they you know make the laws much stricter. They make it harder to get a divorce. They have judicial rulings that actually overturn divorces. Um, there are people who are, are charged as criminals for bigamy because they have remarried after a divorce. Um, there are just all of these social pressures. There are um, religious efforts to prevent people from remarrying completely after they have divorced. So there are all kinds of obstacles constructed. And the piece that makes me hopeful is that none of them worked. People <laughs> well, I, kept, none yeah. of them eliminated bad marriages. Right. So people still sought out an escape. That's the thing. You really can't keep uh, the, the, the push towards liberation. Um, you can't really hold that down. The, I think um, the push for anyone to, to have autonomy, to have agency and in patriarchy that that's that's women that's non-binary people that's people that you know are not cis white dudes basically um particularly here in america <laughs> um mm -hmm. and i think that at the end of the day a lot of a lot of the history all goes back to trying to control our choices and limit our ability to sort of just self-determine what we want to do in our lives and again i like that you know, it doesn't work. They're going to put up all the obstacles, but history teaches us that it did not work in the past and it may not work in the present. Um, can you also talk about the suffragettes? Because they come up a lot in the context of um, the push for well, getting white women the right to vote um, and the debates about around civil rights and, and voting rights. But can you talk about their split on the idea of divorce as well? Because you started the conversation talking about how marriage is basically the vehicle for economic opportunity, um, one of the only vehicles for economic opportunity for women at the time. But the suffragettes themselves were actually split on this question. Yeah, there was only one thing they all agreed on, and that was the idea that there needed to be women in the room when these decisions were being made about divorce. And that, and that was not true. You know, all of the levels, um, all of the levers of power we see in this time are controlled by men. 
So they universally agreed that women needed to be in the room. What those women should be advocating for was, was completely different. You know, you had people who came to the suffrage movement um, from a religious background. So despite the fact that divorce did have, um, did provide opportunities to women, uh, they were very concerned about the, the religious connotations of that. And also I will say they were concerned about the idea that men could just leave their wives willy-nilly and these women would you know, not have opportunity because they had been abandoned. So there, there was concern about that. Then you had people who recognized that, that this was to some of them as important as the right to vote. This, this control over one's intimate life was essential to being able to thrive. Um, and then you had some who were all the way on the other end and, and believed in the idea of free love, believed that the government should not have control over this intimate space of people's lives at all. Um, and that divide basically scared the suffrage movement at this time off of the issue of divorce because they did not want it to distract or splinter the movement. Mm. Um, and so it really did not get the attention um, we might today think of it getting. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's just so it's so incredible to think about the debates at the time, sometimes in, in the present, um, mm -hmm. they pop up as well. My last question is, is about current attitudes about divorce, thinking about Sioux, Sioux Falls and the legacy of Sioux Falls. Do you think that, you know, there's so many, there's so much research and, you know, ink spilled about millennial and Gen Z attitudes towards marriage. And I mentioned that I'm an old millennial. Um, but I, in the pandemic, I joke that like my attitudes have sort of hardened uh, against marriage because I don't want to be trapped with anyone. Like I like my own company. So like, I don't ever want to be trapped with anyone and we don't know if another pandemic will come in the future. <laughs> um, but can you talk about current attitudes towards marriage and how, um, if any, there are parallels between, um, what was happening in Sioux Falls in the early 19th century and what people are saying now? Yeah, so what I think we see happen in Sioux Falls is a shift in our understanding of divorce. Um, basically, for over the course of 20 years, you see these women, and both men and women went to Sioux Falls, but it was the women that caused the panic. You see these women vilified on the front pages. But after 20 years, you sort of realize, oh, the nation still hasn't fallen. You know, so we see this shift in attitudes because divorce became normalized. And, and I do think we're there. But what the argument I make in the book is that we need to think about this as a civil rights victory. We need to think about this in the same terms that we think about the expanding marriage rights to interracial yeah. couples and same-sex couples, because this autonomy and this idea that we want to choose whom to love and how to live, we have to both be able to marry and divorce in order to be able to do that. And I don't think we've absorbed that into our culture. So when we think about marriage and divorce today, um, we do see people floating ideas to make divorce more difficult. Like we just haven't realized how important that piece and what, what the women in the divorce colony showed us. We haven't necessarily realized the importance of that. That's a really powerful way to put it. And I think, um, you know, I, I don't know that I necessarily um, have ever articulated it that way, right? In order to sort of, you know, establish the principle in civil rights that, you should have the power to love someone, but then also decide that, yeah, I, I, I changed my mind and I would like to exit the situation because it's not making me happy in my life, that that is equally important and equally um, 
you know, essential to the entire principle of civil rights and agency and really just freedom. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that I never thought about it that way until you just said it. <laughs> so I really appreciate the, um, that specific framing because I think now I'm always going to say, oh, my gosh, my producer just said that if <laughs> I'm going to say this on the radio, um, uh, we, we like K-dramas here on this morning show. And she's <laughs> like, well, if it was Gong Yu, maybe I would get married. You know, maybe I'd get <laughs> married. I, I touche. I, I share that share that assessment. There's a few K-drama actors that if they showed up, I don't know, my attitudes might, might change. But um, but again, marriage and divorce, both equally important in terms of civil rights. That is the new thing I'm going to say now I'm going to say it to everyone whoever will listen thank you so much April White author of The Divorce Colony the new book that you definitely should get and I I learned so much history which is my favorite thing so I love a good morning radio history lesson thank you so much for joining us this morning please stay safe Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday.